verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Years ago, Reader's Digest used to have a monthly feature that was called something along the lines of a most unforgettable character. And in that feature, it would always uh, highlight and talk about the life and the contributions of some notable American. I want to broaden that this morning with the premise of this lesson. And that is to say that Jesus Christ is the most unforgettable person who ever lived. At least that was the assessment of John in his gospel account. And that's where we're drawing our text this morning, and that's where I hope you'll continue to open your Bibles and have that open because that's where we're going to be studying this morning. I'm talking about John, who was one of the brothers of James and uh, one of the sons of Zebedee. He was also the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. Apparently, his was the last of the gospel accounts to be written that helps us somewhat in appreciating the chronology of the synoptic gospels. But John takes a very unique approach to the life of Jesus. You'll notice there are some things that are highlighted in the other gospel accounts that are not even mentioned in in the gospel of John. He does not include the temptations. He doesn't talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper at all. And not a single parable of the Lord is mentioned in the book of John. John comes from another direction. You'll see in this gospel account that John is emphasizing the subject of love as well as in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, especially the first letter. And and for that reason, John is many times referred to as the apostle of love, not so much because he was a man who exemplified love, although I think that's the case, but because that was his favorite subject. Whenever he wrote these books, that was always his emphasis. And he saw something in in the life of Jesus that was very, very different from other men. In the 20th chapter of his letter, As John David just read from verses 30 and 31, Jesus writes, I want us to look at it one more time. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in believing that you may have life through his name. So appreciate the fact that one chapter from the end of his gospel account, John finally tells us what the premise of this whole book is about. And it's believing. It's so that we might have faith that Jesus is who he claimed he is. So the purpose of the gospel of John is to bring us to believe in Jesus. With the understanding that when we come to believe in Jesus, he'll have an impact on our lives. And I'm not just talking about a minor impact. I'm talking about an impact that will change and transform our very lives. That's why John wrote this letter. And he was, I remind you, the son of God. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited one. And by believing that, John says we can have life, a life in his name lived under his authority. And so one of the many questions that could be asked about the way John writes this book is, what happened to the people who met Jesus? It's one thing to make an assertion that Jesus changed people that he came in contact with. Some of them rejected him. Many of them accepted and decided to follow him. But they were never the same. They always, he always had some kind of impact, some kind of influence on their lives. That's the assertion. 
And by walking through the book of John and seeing how Jesus interacted and how he touched these lives, we can then prove the premise that we're setting out to appreciate even more this morning. So let's look very briefly. We'll not be able to spend much time on any of these particular people, but notice how many times and how diverse these people are that came in contact with Jesus. The first group of people that I want us to think about is the sick people. And Jesus did go around doing miracles and healing people and, and making sure that people who were blind, as in John chapter 9, were able to see once again. But in the, the, the ninth chapter there, John tells us of this man who had been born blind. So this wasn't something that happened to him because of an accident. This was the only existence that he ever knew. He had been born blind. And this is just one of the cases recorded by John where Jesus met someone who was was physically sick or infirm in some way. The disciples went to Jesus, and notice their first question was it, how are you able to do this? Or maybe even why are you willing to heal this blind man? Their question is theological in nature. Their question is, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I think it's rather curious, don't you, that their first question is, Theological in nature. Now, it also reflects the, the thinking of the Jews that sin was the cause of blindness or any kind of sickness. It was kind of an instant karma sort of thing. So if you have something good that happens in your life, it's because of something good you've done. Or in this case, if something bad happens, if you're born blind or if you have a terrible accident, it's because of some sin, some transgression in your life that has brought about this misfortune. That was the thinking prominently of the Jews so a person in their mind was never sick unless there had been some kind of sin. But Jesus answered their question, I think, in a rather unexpected way. What he said was, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now that's answering the question, isn't it? We want to know which one. Notice they didn't say, is there some other option? You know, in this multiple choice question, could there possibly be C and then D all the above? No, they just want to know, was it this man or was it his parents? And he said, neither one. Neither one of them are responsible for the man's blindness. And then he goes on to explain, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Since it did happen, God's power can be manifest in this man's situation. And Jesus did a very strange thing. The Bible says he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and put that mud on the man's eyes. Now, it gets better. He then instructed the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Bible record says, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. A big theological discussion then takes place concerning the action by Jesus. You think that when we get to the payoff, the man is now able to see, that would be the end of the account. But no, there's more theological discussion that goes on. It's interesting, isn't it, how religious discussions go. Oftentimes, it's the people who are not really the principal character involved who are doing all the talking. And that's the case here in John chapter 9. They're the ones who stir up this theological debate, as it were. And, and finally, the blind man who has been made to see is allowed to actually say something. If you look down in John 9 and verse 33, is where the man actually is able to express his own thinking. Everybody's been talking about him. And around him, and nobody has allowed him to say anything up until this point. Who, who sinned, this man or his parents? And finally he says, if this man were not from God, he could not do anything. That was his assessment. And folks, I'm telling you what you already know. That was the wisest thing that was said anywhere in this conversation. 
I mean, he was spot on in his assessment of not only what had just happened, but also who it was that was responsible for the miracle. The Pharisees weren't successful in, in trapping Jesus on the theology side of it, and so they're turning to the man and demanding to interrogate him. And that former blind man doesn't claim to know a lot of theology or to know who sinned that would cause his blindness. All he knows is that Jesus could not have done what he did had he not been from God. Have you ever heard of Occam's razor? It's the idea that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. And that is at, at play, I think, in this instance. This man has to be from God, or he wouldn't be able to do what he just did. Not only the sick people, but also the sinners Jesus came in contact with. In the fourth chapter, if you'll turn to John chapter 4 for a moment, John writes of another conversation, and it was a, unusual in many respects, but especially from a, a, a social one. Because you have a man talking to a woman, and you have a Jew talking to a Samaritan, and you may know that just wasn't done in that culture. Men did not talk to women in public, and Jews were not seen talking or even associating in any way with the Samaritans who were considered to be half-breeds. They were even considered to be dogs in the mind of a Jew. But as Jesus is traveling through Samaria, he stopped at a well to get some water. And a Samaritan woman came to draw water. In verse 7, if you look at it, Jesus said, Will you give me a drink? And then Jesus began to talk about this woman. He talked about her marriages, plural, her worship of God, and about her life in general. Now, there's a lot more that goes on, but I want us to, to drop down to the bottom line of this conversation. Then she left Jesus. The Bible says she went back to her hometown. And then she said to the people, and I'm quoting now, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Again, the assessment of a person on the street who has not been theologically trained, but who recognizes the Messiah, when she, could this possibly be the Christ? That was an intriguing question, by the way, for a Samaritan woman to ask. It sounds as if she had some idea of who the Christ was. Maybe she had read and studied the words of the prophets as they prophesied about the coming Messiah. And so she's not surprised that he's coming into the world and this man just might be the one that, that these men wrote about. But here's a sinful woman who apparently, according to the text, didn't know who her husband was because she had had so many marriages. Here's someone who is in that situation of life who said, could this be the Christ? And then in the 8th chapter, John tells of another woman who met Jesus. This time was a, it was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. You know the, the account. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were about to kill her because that's what the law had demanded. Before they did... They decided to use this incident to trap Jesus, to entangle him in his speech. And so they, they, they went to confront Jesus, and uh, before Jesus replied in any way, the Bible says that he bent down and began to write in the dirt. This is one of the most interesting accounts, I think, of any interaction with Jesus. But again, rather than trying to verbally respond to their allegations, he just writes in the dirt. And, and, and then he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, guess what? People began to leave. All those accusers who were ready to stone this woman to death began to one by one leave. And then before you know it, everybody is gone. And he looks up at the woman. He said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there is no one, sir. 
And then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here is a woman, I remind you, who was caught in the act of adultery. So we're talking about someone who is a totally lost person. Someone who needed that spiritual redemption in her life that only the great physician could bring about. And yet this woman found that Jesus was extending his grace and not his condemnation to her. If you want to know how people reacted when Jesus encountered them, I think this is a classic example. And don't you believe that this woman was astounded by Jesus' reaction? Everybody else was willing to condemn her, and these men that had been around her were wanting to stone her, and Jesus said, no, you go. But then the parting admonition was, you leave your life of sin. You don't continue living the way you've been living if you want to know what the abundant life is all about. She had met the Savior. And that was really good news for her. And then there was the powerful. John shows us that Jesus met not just the sick and those who were sinners, but also the powerful and influential. You might think, if you were a disbeliever, that Jesus could have that kind of sway and influence on people of low estate that could be easily influenced in that way but not people who were smart and not people who were influential and not people who were wealthy. They didn't buy into who Jesus... No, you'll see that they likewise were impacted by the life and the words of Jesus. In John chapter 4 again, the account of Jesus and the royal official is given. And you may remember that the official son was sick. The father went to see Jesus, the text says, and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And then Jesus said, you go. Because your son, past tense, has been made well. Again, you have to wonder about the emotional cauldron that was going on in the man's mind. The healing occurred, the Bible says, at the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will live. And then the bottom line of this incident is, and so he and all his household believed. Remember, why did John say that he was writing his gospel account? So that we would believe, and in believing that we might have life in his name. And then over in the third chapter of John, back up one chapter, there's the story of another influential and powerful man by the name of Nicodemus and his conversation with Jesus during the night shift. We don't know why, but the Bible says that Nicodemus came to see Jesus by night. He was a powerful member of the Jewish ruling council. Very powerful, very influential, and in all likelihood, considering his estate in life, very wealthy. He went to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Apparently, Nicodemus had been watching Jesus. He'd been listening to Jesus. He'd been seeing his miracles. He had seen the consistency of his life with what he was professing. And so he comes and gives this assessment. We know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do the things that you do except God be with him. Does that sound familiar? We looked at one account already who pretty much has the same assessment. What greater compliment could a man pay Jesus than to say that? We know that you have come from God. We know because of what you're saying and also because of what you're doing. Now, don't miss that. The impact that Jesus had on the powerful and the influential is absolutely tremendous. Jesus also had a great impact on the military. Over in the seventh chapter of his gospel, John tells us of one such instance, the temple guards. I absolutely love this account, by the way. There's got to be some appreciation of almost the humor that takes place in this account because the temple guards had been sent to arrest Jesus. They went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees without Jesus. 
Now think about how that they would have gotten dressed down by the authorities that were over them. We sent you with one order, and that was to go arrest Jesus, to bind him and bring him back. Here you are back. What's missing in this picture? It's Jesus. It's the man you went after. And notice the defense of the guards. What they say is, no one ever spoke the way this man speaks. They apparently got lost in his message. They had gone to arrest Jesus. Apparently he was delivering a message to the people when they arrived on scene. There had been so many people around Jesus that they couldn't get near him. And, and they didn't want to make a scene because they had already found out that if you, that if you do anything to this man... There's a reason to fear the people because he's very popular and many have accepted him and decided to follow him. And so they probably just will just wait for this man to finish what he's saying and then we'll take him and we'll arrest him and we'll bring him back. The guards were apparently a part of the Jewish military, not the Roman military, and they guarded the temple as a part of their duties. But they were sent to get Jesus, bring him back as it were in handcuffs, but they returned. And the only thing that they could say was, we never heard anybody speak the way this man speaks. Jesus had made an impact on the temple guard, seasoned, hardened military men who were hard to impress. And then there's another incident between Jesus and the military. This is found in John chapter 18. This time it's with Pilate, who is the head of the Roman military in Palestine. Jesus talked with Pilate there that day heart to heart. And the Bible tells us what they talked about. Talked about authority, talked about truth, talked about the kingdom and its nature. And after the conversation, the commander-in-chief of the Roman military in Palestine said, and I'm quoting, I find no basis for a charge against this man. The impact of Jesus on Pilate leads him to the conclusion that he doesn't know why the people are so upset because he could find no reason to charge Jesus with any crime at all. Jesus had a powerful, made a powerful imprint on the military and on Pilate in particular. And then there's the common people. Jesus met, and this is probably the biggest category of all in the book of John, he met the normal, everyday people. And John refers to them when we get to those cases as the multitude. Sometimes they're just referred to as a great crowd of people, as in chapter 6. Included in the multitude are the people in general, the rank and file man or woman on the street. We're talking about the average Joe, those people that would constitute the largest segment of the population. And it was on this occasion that Jesus had just got through feeding 5,000 people with only five small barley loaves and two small fishes. And then John writes this. After the people saw the miraculous sign that he did, they began to say, here it is again. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and to take him and make him king by force, the Bible says, left and went apart by himself into the hills. That is, he was saturating that place with his absence. He didn't want that to happen. The people in general saw Jesus, saw his impact on them was so great that they decided, we're going to make this, king, this man king whether he wants to be king or not. Again in chapter 7, John records that Jesus was among the people of the multitudes, the average, the average persons. And on hearing his words, some said, surely this man is the prophet. And others said, he is the Christ. Jesus had an impact on common, ordinary people. 
Jesus also had a great impact on his friends. And John makes it very clear that the closest people to Jesus were his disciples. Not even his physical family, but his disciples were closer to Jesus than anybody who walked on this earth. And in John 6, verses 68 and 69, in fact, back in verse 66 is where you have a wholesale departure of Jesus' disciples. And his disciples forsook him and fled, verse 66. Verse 67, Jesus said, will you also go away? He wanted to know, how deep is your commitment to me? What kind of price are you willing to pay to be a follower of me? And then in verses 68 and 69 of John 6, Simon Peter answered, Jesus said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe, watch this, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Isn't that great? I'll remind you, these disciples were the men closest to Jesus. They ate breakfast with him. They heard him speak. They walked with him day by day. They looked to see if he was consistent in what he said and what he actually did, if those two things squared with one another. And speaking for the apostles, as he frequently did, it was Peter who said, we believe, that is, we're convinced that you are who you say you are, that you are the Son of God. Now, don't miss that key word in this simple statement of faith. We, we believe. And remember that John wrote his gospel account so that we might believe. It is the gospel of faith, as some have called this gospel account. Jesus had other close friends. Over in chapter 11 of John's account, we have Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in chapter 11, John writes of the death and the resurrection of Lazarus by the hand of Jesus and the, and the tremendous impact that it had on those who were present. And we know that his sisters already had some idea, some intimation of the power of Jesus because one of them said to the Lord when he finally arrived on scene, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But Jesus, knowing full well that what he had come to Bethany to do was to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Notice that word believe there again in that account. And then Jesus also had an impact on the doubters, on people who doubted his claims. Again, not all of them became his disciples, but they were never the same again. Probably the best example can be found in the 20th chapter of the book of John, if you want to turn there for a moment. Jesus had suffered, he had already died, he had been raised from the dead, and then he's appearing to his disciples. You may remember that it was Thomas who was not there, and he simply would not believe that Jesus was alive post-resurrection until he was allowed to touch Jesus and to see Jesus for himself. And the Bible says when Jesus saw Thomas, he said, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Notice the word believe again in this text. That's the recurring theme. Thomas doubted. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to be a believer. Even though Thomas was one of the closest disciples, I, I won't believe that Jesus is alive until I'm able to see him and I'm able to touch the wounds in his body. And Jesus gave him that opportunity. And then Thomas said, my Lord and my God. There are many other accounts in the gospel record of John where Jesus encountered skeptical people. But I think these examples clearly show that when people encountered Jesus, he made an impact on their minds and on their lives that they would never forget. The bottom line is, folks, Jesus was a person who changed people. Whether they were military 
everyday ordinary people, close friends, people who doubted, or the powerful and influential. If we read further about the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts, for example, just one book over, and also in the letters that constitute the remainder of the New Testament, we find people continuing to change as they came to know Jesus. In Acts 4, for example, the Bible says that Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin because they had horror of horrors healed a man. And now they're being brought up on criminal charges. And the people, the Bible said, realized, talking about Peter and John, realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Just that association with Jesus changed a person, and, and these people were acknowledging that. Now, i remind you, Jesus had already ascended into heaven, but he continued to have an impact on people through his followers. 3,000 3, people were changed on the day of Pentecost through the impact that, that Jesus had had specifically on Peter. Here's the application. The church of our Lord is to still have that kind of impact on the world in which we live. Several times in the book of Acts, Luke refers to the disciples as members of the way. You're familiar with that. Just They were a part of the way. And the disciples recognized that that was a nomenclature that was very apt because they had discovered a way to live, but they had also discovered a way to die. They were members of this way. They followed Jesus. They walked in his spiritual footsteps. The disciples were such close followers of Jesus that they were soon to be known as Christians. Acts 11.26 says they were called Christians first in Antioch. And then Paul would write his letters in Philippians 1.21 as we looked at last week. He said, for me to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, what's your life about? It's about Jesus. It's about getting his message out. Everything in my life is about Jesus Christ. And the point is, when these earlier followers of Jesus came into contact with people, they apparently had an impact on people that was very similar to the impact that Jesus had had on the world. And that association changed people forevermore. I don't think we do John's Gospel account service and we say, well, Jesus had great impact on people because he was the son of God. And you would expect that if Jesus came in the flesh. We'll never have a similar impact on people. That's where we're wrong. That's why I think that the story is completed then on into the New Testament and beyond. The Bible says that people just like you and me, average, ordinary people, rank and file, who are very different from one another in personality and maybe, maybe even in background, and yet have come to Jesus and have life in his name, we can go out and we can have an impact on people, and that is not only what we can do, Jesus said in his parting words, that is what we should be doing. Go make disciples of this whole world is what he said in Matthew's account. And people can look at the lives of men and women in Christ's church even in 2018 and say, well, we may have this or that against them. And we may not agree with them on every point of doctrine, but I tell you what, these folks have been with Jesus. They are very close to what we see in the life of Jesus and what we can read about in the Bible. That's what people ought to be saying about the church of our Lord. The whole point is that, that the person who changed people was Jesus, and he had an impact on them that shook this world from center to circumference. 
It was his conversations and his encounters with people that changed and transformed their lives. None of what John or any of the gospel writers wrote was overly dramatic. But it was through those daily happenings, that constant association with Jesus, that they felt that impact and they began to see that radical change, that radical difference in their lives. It was the life in him. It was, to use the biblical terminology, it was the Spirit of God in Jesus that shined through. He said on more than one occasion, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So he wanted to reflect God when he walked among the people during his 33 years on this planet. And then he began to, watch this carefully, we're almost through. It began to shine through Peter and John and James and the rest of the apostles and then through the church of the first century and through us today. That's his plan. That's his mission, and that's our calling. Folks, we must not quench the Holy Spirit that is within us because that is the life that's in us. It came to us when we were first baptized. At least that's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Many people in the church suffer, I think, from spiritual inferiority complexes. We underestimate what God can do through our lives, and we tend to think if I acknowledge that I have any influence on people at all, people will think I'm an egotist and that I'm a bragger. No, we're not bragging on ourselves. We're bragging on the power of Christ. And if we're not reflecting his glory, then we're not the salt of the earth and we're not the light of the world, as Jesus said we must be in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to tell ourselves that we, that we can have an impact on people. But listen to me now. We can have an impact because Jesus said so. Did you hear me, church? We can have an influence, a positive influence on Montgomery, Alabama, wherever we live in the world because Jesus said so. And if we don't quench the life that's in us and if we can let it shine through us and people can see through our personalities and our foibles and they can see our love and our self-control and our never-die spirit, we can change the world through the power of Jesus Christ in us. In Lloyd C. Douglas's famous novel entitled The Robe, Marcellus is the character portrayed as being the soldier at the foot of the cross the day that Jesus died. The rest of the story, or the rest of his novel at least, is the story of Marcellus going throughout the Roman world saying to people, were you there? Did you see him die? Did you hear what he said when he was hanging on that cross? Did you see his demeanor and his refusal to lash out at people, but rather to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Let me tell you, Marcellus says, what I saw that day in Jerusalem as I stood at the foot of the cross, and let me tell you how I saw him die as he hung there on that cross. You see, Marcellus was a changed man, and you may remember that the gospel even said that the centurion in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus believed, there's that word again. And we know that because of the words preserved in Scripture for all eternity. The Bible says the Roman centurion at the foot of Jesus' cross said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Christ has been changing people ever since. 
The question of this hour is, has he changed you? Has your faith, have you, do you believe to the point that you are able to say, I know Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's the son of God. That he came into this world to redeem lost humanity, of which I am one. And that will move us to repent of our past sins, to confess the very thing that the Roman centurion confessed. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And to be immersed in water, to have all of our sins washed away in his blood, because that's where the strength of the power comes from, the power of Jesus' cross, while we stand, while we sing.